0: Now, though, we come to start our our new series uh, on what it means to be made in the image of God. In His Image is the series title. We're going to spend five weeks on this topic. A helpful resource if you'd like to study uh, more as we go through this series uh, comes from Matt Chandler. He's the pastor at a church in in Dallas, Texas called The Village Church. He's written a book and has a sermon series called A Beautiful Design, uh, God's Unchanging Plan for Manhood and womanhood A great resource to be using along with this series. We'll glean from it ourselves in some of our times, but we'll also be studying it in some of our small groups. So encourage you to to check that out. Now, though, we turn to Genesis chapter 1, page 1. We're going to read starting in verse 24 through to the end of the chapter. This is Genesis 1. We're in the creation account. It's the sixth day of creation. And we read these words. God said, Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for how you are at work in our midst through the power of your spirit. And what a joy it is, Lord, to be a, to be a church that gets to participate in what you are doing in your kingdom work here on earth. And Lord, we're bold to ask that you would come again Meet with us even in these moments by the power of your spirit, that your word might find a place in our hearts. Um, Lord, I pray especially that tonight we would grapple with what it means to be made in your image and what that means for us personally. Be with us and be our teacher, we pray in these moments, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, the image of God being made in his image, it is a rich image deep topic that has a lot of profound implications for us. But if you're here tonight and you're thinking, I'm not really sure what we're talking about when we talk about the image of image of God, uh, let's start by saying we're actually talking about something that, while rich and deep, it's also... Um, quite easy for us to understand. We even intuitively have an understanding of it. Now, to illustrate that, I want to pull um, a couple of uh, victims up here. So, Bill Fullerlove, uh, Ryan, up you come. Nathan Newman, I see you sitting there. Up you come. <clears throat> Here's how I want to illustrate um, the intuitive side of this truth. So, um, in my in my household, in the Forsyth household, uh, there are seven living souls, okay? And you are going to represent the, the living, breathing creatures in my house. So Ryan, you stand over here. Nathan, you stand here. you stand here, okay. Um, Ryan, the seven living, breathing things in my soul uh, in my house. You're going to represent um, Rosie and I, okay? I can see your face, baby. Okay. This is Rosie, the wife of my youth. Um, high school sweethearts. been married 17 years. My peaceful, easy feeling. The best thing I have in my life. That's you, baby. <laughs> Looking good, buddy. Okay. Um, Newman, <laughs> you are not the wife of my youth. Um, you represent my kiddos, okay? Here's Clan Forsyth's children Mia, Caleb, Seamus, and Isla. I love these guys. Kids, each of them in their own way, opened up and brought alive a part of my heart that I didn't even know existed till they came along, right? Um, a profound blessing, uh, second to marriage, the, the greatest gift that, that God has given me on this earth. So I, I love you too, okay? Um, Bill, you represent the seventh living being in my house. I'm allergic to cats. Okay. This is the cat. We have a cat. The cat is called Haggis, right? Seems appropriate. Um, when people ask me, oh, do you eat haggis? I always say, well, it depends what you mean, right? So um, I don't eat this kind of haggis. And Bill, I love my wife and I love my kids. And I like you, okay? And yeah. I don't care about yeah, you. Yeah, you know, you don't care. You're a cat, you're a superior, you don't care. <laughs> um, now, of course, it's important, uh, it actually is important to look after animals, and as part of this Image of God series, we'll talk about the importance of, of stewarding the environment and, and, and caring about the world that God has given us, but here's my question. Um, financial hardship hits the Forsythe household. Tragic financial hardship. Who's the first to go? The kids. Right? Who's the first to go? Now, here's the thing. If we were to be utilitarian about it and say, well, which one costs me, <laughs> which one, you know, which costs the most money? Okay, I'm definitely over here. Okay, I'm wise enough not to say where over here I am. I'm just definitely over here in this in this general in this general direction. Um, Haggis doesn't have a credit card. Haggis doesn't have doesn't need college savings. Okay, um, if we're making you know a strict financial decision, okay, maybe you know, but, but clearly I'm not. Clearly. Um, I'm keeping you, baby, okay? You're, you're in, okay? You're in number one. Um, okay, if we don't think about it financially, but still in a kind of utilitarian way, what about just like fr- from the perspective of, of ease and convenience, right? You know, haggis, like, haggis, I don't stay awake at night worrying about haggis. I have never done that ever, right? Um, I can't say the same about, about, this, about this. And yet, and yet, there's no doubt I'm keeping you too, buddy, Okay. Um, clearly, uh, if someone has to go, Bill, you're out, okay? You're done. Um, if, 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 if one of us has to leave, the first one that's leaving is Haggis, the cat. Thank you, guys. Great job. You can head back down. Yeah, thank you. Now, the question is why? And of course, we all knew that, okay? When I said, who goes first, no one was like, Rosie. <laughs> Get rid of her. Keep the cat, right? Um, we, all, we all intrinsically know that the life of these human beings are much more valuable, much more important than the life of the cat. We're not saying anything mean about the cat. We're just saying we all intuitively understand that humanity is being created separate to, distinct from, and even above the rest of the created order. And the reason that that's the case, the reason we know that we've been created separate to, distinct from, and even above the rest of the created order, is because Genesis 1.27 tells us we've been created, how? In the image of God. The rest of the creation has not been created in the image of God. Humanity and humanity alone has been created in the image of God. Now, this truth is made clear to us on the very first page of the Bible, which I think is, just, is kind of significant, right? My, you know, you're God, you're deciding, okay, I'm going to write a book, and I'm going to give it to my people, and this is how they're going to know me. Uh, and so, like, what's the headline going to be? What am I going to put on the very first page? What's the very first thing that they're going to read about? Well, one of the very first things we read about is, is this fact that we've been made in the image of God. Look at verse 26 with me. We're in Genesis 1, the creation account, we get to the sixth day and the Trinity huddles up and they say to one another, hey, this has been great. We've been making all kinds of stuff. We made locks and moors and mud and rocks, and then uh, we made some animals too. We made some cows and some horses and some ants, and then we were feeling jovial, so we made a giraffe, and we made all kinds of like amazing things in this world. But hey, let now, now, verse 26, let's do something different. Let's make something different because it's something like us. Let's make something like us. Let's make something in our image after our likeness. And so verse 27, the next verse, you see it there, is the key verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Humanity has been made in the image of God. Men and women, male and female together, equally made in the image of God. And it's fascinating because you see how this verse, verse 27, is offset from the, the rest of the text. It's done that way because in Hebrew it's very clear that this is, this is a poem. This is the first poetry we have recorded in, in history. History. I don't think it was the first poetry ever because I'm sure that before God created humanity, eternity was, was full of verse. We have a creative God who delights to create things. But this is the first poetry that we have recorded. And it's written to celebrate what? It's written to celebrate that humanity is different to distinct from above the rest of the created order. It's written to celebrate the fact that humanity has been made in the image of God. So two questions for our time together this evening when it comes to being made in the image of God which seems significant first question what exactly does that mean like okay we're in the image of God but how are we in the image of God what does it mean to be made in the image of God and second question um, what difference does that make what does it mean what difference does it make Let's answer our first question, what does it mean to be made in the image of God, by thinking closely about this word image itself and really seeing two things from the text. First of all, we want to see together that to be made in the image of God, according to Genesis, means that you uniquely resemble God. Resemble him. You uniquely resemble God. So the Hebrew term image that's used here originally referred to something that had been cut out out of a larger object, something cut out from a larger object. So think of how a statue, perhaps, would be cut out or chiseled out of of a larger slab. Well, that's the term that's used here to define uh, humanity. There is a family resemblance we take after God. There is a sense in which, in His image, we are literally a, a chip off His block. We resemble him in unique ways. Now, when we talk about this, we're not talking about something physical. We're not saying God made us to look like him, arms, legs, and so on. We know that God is a spirit. He doesn't have, have a body like, like we do. No, instead, we'd be made to resemble God in our, in our character and in our, our being. So three, three quick examples to make this a bit more concrete. First of all, we resemble God in some of our intellectual capacities, We have the ability to reflect. We have the ability to pursue wisdom. Haggis, my cat, does not stay awake at night and think, what is the meaning of life? (laughs) How can I be a purposeful animal? Um, What is the measure of my days? How can can I make the most of of this life that, that God has? Haggis doesn't ask that question. doesn't have that intellectual capacity for wisdom and reflection. We do, and in so doing, we resemble God. Not just those intellectual capacities, though. We also have righteous capacities uh, for morality and ethics. Righteous capacities that make us resemble God. So Haggis has absolutely no angst ever over killing a mouse or anything else she can get her paws on. Humanity, we, we wrestle with questions like this. Is, is it right or wrong to, to do this particular thing? Uh, an example on, on, of this came literally over killing a mouse. I, I got a, a call one day when I'm at home, and it's my wee girl, Isla, who's about four at the time, down in our basement, and she calls because Haggis has, has killed a mouse in the basement. Okay? So I go running down, and it's nearly true. Like Haggis says, almost killed the mouse. The mouse is like nearly dead, right? Um, now, Hackess, she's totally chill. She's just batting it around, you know? She's just playing with it. Um, Isla, on the other hand, is, you know, she's devastated. Why? Because, I don't know, she thinks this is like Tom and Jerry to her, okay? she's horrible. heartbroken. So I say, never fear, and I pick up a bit of cardboard that's in her basement, and I scoop up the mouse, and I take it out of her backyard, and I was just going to throw it, like, in the bushes, but I kind of felt really sorry for the mouse because it was really... It was definitely going to die but wasn't quite dead yet, right? So I decided to put it out its misery, you know, you understand my motivation here, okay? So, I fold the cardboard up and I put it on the ground. Okay. I look up. And Isla is at the kitchen window. And she is looking at me like, "What kind of monster is my father?" <laughs> Right, it was terrible. I don't know if she's forgiven me yet. Um, <laughs> where was going with else? Oh yeah, the point being, that four-year-old hasn't been taught about this. Doesn't you know? It's not some result of some big philosophizing. Just has an intuitive sense of of being afraid. Is this the right thing to do or not? Is this right? Is this wrong? Is this good? Is this bad? As a four-year-old, we intuitively understand those things. Haggis doesn't have any of those qualms. Why does humanity have all of those? issues. I would say good, healthy issues. Well, because we've been made different to the rest of creation, made in the image of God. We have this kind of righteous capacity. An intellectual capacity, a righteous capacity. We could go on, kind of holy capacities that we have uh, that uh, resemble God uh, for mercy, for, for grace. You know, Haggis doesn't care if you're mad with her. She doesn't care if you've had a long day. She doesn't care about these things that we would care about with each other. We have been created. You have been created with God-like capacities that make you resemble God. You're, you're like him in some ways because he has made you in his image. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? First of all, it means that you uniquely resemble God. Secondly, though, we can also see from this term image that to be made in the image of God also means that you uniquely represent God, You uniquely resemble him in order that you might uniquely represent him. The term image is used in the Bible to refer to statues that kings would set up of themselves in far-off distant lands that they ruled. So that the inhabitants of those lands, though they would never see the king in person, would see the statue, would see the image, and be reminded of their authority, and be reminded of their rule. We do a very similar thing today. Think of the statues of Saddam Hussein that was toppled in, in Baghdad. Or even just think about how uh, most countries, if you look at their banknotes, look at their currency, have, have images of their leaders on them. Images to, to remind you of authority, to remind you of their Uh, rule? Well, here in verse 27, this idea is applied to humanity. God hasn't set up lifeless statues of himself. He hasn't merely painted his face on on a banknote. Instead, he represents his authority. He represents his rule here on earth through living images through living statues, through his own creation who resemble him in order that they might represent him. That's why God tells us in verse 28, follow the logical flow down to verse 28, where he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. He says, fill the earth with my image. Represent me wherever you go. I have made you to be uh, like me to resemble me, in order that you might uh, represent me throughout the world. It is like I am making you my ambassadors to the world, and I want you to steward the world on my behalf. So, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? These two things, at least: first, that you uniquely resemble God; you have capacities that the rest of creation doesn't that make you like Him. Secondly, He has He has He has made you this way in order that you might represent him here on earth, that you might make his presence known wherever you go. Question one, what does it mean? Question two, um, what difference does it make? What difference does it make that we've been made in the image of God? In many ways, the answer is all the difference in the world. And we're going to spend the next four weeks, five weeks together, unpacking the difference that it makes to how we think about our purpose as men and as women, to how we think about our our place on this earth, to how we think about some of the thorny and challenging questions that come up in our culture around gender and sexuality and so forth. The image of God speaks to all of these issues. But today, as we begin this series, I want to narrow the focus and solely try and apply this teaching, what it means to be made in the image of God, just to ourselves. We're going to get to the broader implications, but tonight, I just want to try and apply it to ourselves. C.S. Lewis wrote famously and powerfully about how the image of God should change how we think about each other. There's a small book called The Weight of Glory where he says, there are no ordinary people. You never talk to a mere mortal, nations, cultures, arts civilizations. These are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses." Because we have been made in the image of God, we have been made with unspeakable value, dignity, and worth. And so, look at your neighbor for a second, okay? Embrace the awkwardness of it, okay? Look at your neighbor. They have been created with a soul that will never die. They have been made to uniquely resemble God in order that they might uniquely uh, uh, represent him here on earth. And so look at them again. <laughs> I sometimes wonder if our discomfort with eye contact is our discomfort with holy things. <laughs> our discomfort with looking at things that have been made like the divine. And this teaching should certainly be a challenge to us in terms of how we treat one another. You know, how do you interact with the, those who have been made in the image of God in your home, in your classroom, in your office? Do you treat others, do you speak to others like they possess unspeakable value, dignity, and worth? Be careful. We should be careful how we treat ambassadors of the king. But my point tonight isn't even to try and get us to apply this teaching to our neighbor (laughs) or apply it to other people. My point really tonight is to, to try and get our arms around applying this teaching to our Now, this is a good principle in general, right? Whenever you're studying the Bible, don't start by applying it to those people over there, right? Um, Start by applying it to yourself. What does this mean for me? As it does a work in me, it can begin to spiral out and have implications for others. But let's start with what it means for me. And, you know, sometimes this is hard to do. Sometimes it's easier to apply the Bible to other people first. Um, Sometimes for for bad reasons, because we're prideful. And, you know, actually, it's a lot easier to see the speck in your eye than it is to see the log in my own eye. But sometimes, and this truth is one of of these, it's hard to apply the Bible to ourselves, not so much because of pride, but kind of because of insecurity. Because the Bible's teaching seems, in a sense, too good to be true, You have no problem recognizing, we have have a problem making eye contact with them, but you have no problem recognizing and agreeing with the unspeakable value, dignity, and worth of your neighbor, of those who are sitting beside you, of those who are in this room. But do you believe in the unspeakable value and dignity and worth that you possess, that you possess as an image bearer of God? Now you might say, hey, but there's something wrong with me, like sin, what about sin? Like, surely sin has messed this up. And I say say two things. First of all, I say, do you know that your sin does not erase the image of God in you? Sin does not erase the image of God in you. You can do, just think of it logically. You could do the most horrible, evil, heinous thing imaginable, and it would not make you a cat. It's category confusion to think that your sin can remove the image of God in you. It's just not how it works. Yeah, you've been made to uniquely resemble him, that you might represent him, and, and, and maybe there are ways that you haven't been living into that image and ways you haven't represented him well. Sure, all those things can be true, and those things are true indeed for all of us, but none of them change the fact that you are still made in the image of God. Secondly, lest it not forget the gospel. To this doubt that says in us, yeah, there's something wrong with me, the gospel comes and says, yes, there is, and we've dealt with it. For the sin that is in you, the ultimate image of God has come in Jesus Christ. And he has lived and he has died and he has risen to conquer all of our sin and all of our brokenness so that your sin is forgiven, full and free, and you can begin to enjoy the freedom of joyful obedience. So sin doesn't erase it and the image of God and, and, and Christ has come to, to offer us forgiveness. So um conviction of sin does have a place and a place that drives us to grace, but that's not really what what we're talking about here tonight. What I'm talking about here tonight is that even with that in place, most of us, indeed all of us, still have a nagging voice that tells us there's something wrong. And I just want us to wrestle with the fact that Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. You ever thought about the last part of that verse? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. What does Jesus mean when he says love yourself? See, most of us, and 100% of Presbyterians, don't like thinking about this. Why? Because it sounds like the kind of thing Oprah would say, you know? Um, love yourself, be positive, really you're awesome, and everyone gets a car, right? Uh, we're like, this just this doesn't really ring ring too well, here's the problem. Oprah didn't say this. Jesus said this. (laughs) Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So what does Jesus mean when he says that? Sure, there is a culturally confused version of loving yourself that has to do with a kind of empty or very superficial, vague positivity. But, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about Jesus. What does Jesus mean when he says that? And I want to submit to you tonight that when Jesus says love your neighbor as yourself, he wants you to love yourself because he wants you to remember that you have unspeakable value, dignity, and worth by virtue of the fact that you're made in his image. You love yourself when you remember that you're made in the image of God. And so, what are these nagging insecurities that you have? Right? Maybe you're the teen who's struggling to find their way, struggling to fit in, longing for some good friends. Maybe you're the high school senior waiting to hear back from all those colleges that you want to attend. Maybe you're single, recently ended a relationship, and unsure if you're ever going to be loved in the same way again. Maybe you're a, a mum who has no idea how all the other mums do it and somehow seem to manage to stay sane. Maybe you're a dad who just doesn't know if he has what it takes in the office or even when he's at home. Maybe you've never been happy with your body. Maybe you've never been happy with your personality. Maybe you've never been happy with your gifts and abilities. I want you to hear tonight that when we speak about the glory of humanity, the unspeakable value, dignity, and worth that belongs to the human soul, when we speak about the glory of humanity, we are not speaking about something that, that, that applies to something else, someone else. You are not hearing a message that was meant for someone else. You're hearing a message that on the first page of the Bible is true of you. It's true of you. God would have us see the image of God in each other, but He would also have us see the image of God in the mirror. And I just wonder how much we have wrestled with that truth this evening that God made you in the image of God, that He made no mistakes when he made you, that you uniquely resemble him, that you uniquely represent him. It's staggering stuff to believe that, to believe God's word about yourself. C.S. Lewis called it a weight of glory our thoughts can barely sustain. But, he then added, it is so. It is so. So what's the takeaway? I think this is the takeaway for this point. Um, if you have a tendency to be really hard on yourself, if you judge yourself, condemn yourself, speak harshly to yourself, if you treat yourself in a way that you would never treat another human being made in the image of God, I want you to be careful how you treat ambassadors of the king, and I want you to remember that you are one of them. We're careful how we treat other people, but we're also careful how we treat ourselves. Why? Because all of us have been made with unspeakable glory in the image of God. I know insecurities are super complicated, okay? And all of our insecurities are. And how mine play out are different for yours. But let's just take this practical step. Whenever you look in a mirror, remind yourself that you're made in the image of God. Don't look in the mirror and think, oh, how do I look and what will other people think of me? Do you know I know the answer to that question? I'll let you know the secret. Here's the answer. They're worrying about how they look and what other people think of them. They're not thinking about you. Okay? Um, so many of us run around playing this fool's game that nobody wins and that nobody can win. So as a practice, as a church, when you look in the mirror, Think less about your own opinion, think less about the other opinion of others, and think more about the opinion of God, who says that you are made in his image. The beautiful thing is, you know that doesn't lead to pride, it doesn't lead to self-obsession, that kind of narcissism, it leads to worship, it leads to worship, to delight in the God who made you. Does all this sound... Um, <laughs> Does it sound a little cheesy? Does it sound, you know, I really struggle with this sermon because I don't, you know, does it sound too self-healthy? You know, Uh, does it sound a little childish? I got a quote from Charles Dickens. He said, it is good to be children sometimes and never better than at Christmas when its mighty founder was a child himself. There are places in our faith where to enter the deep parts of it you have to enter them as a child. Don't forget, it took a child to find Narnia. And it took a child to find Wonderland. And it took a child to find Oz. And it may just take the child in you to discover how you've been made in the image of God. To push back against your own fears and the messages that you hear every day in our world. And to listen to the voice of our God who tells you that he has made you in his image and that With us, he is well-pleased. Next week, we're going to jump into some of the implications. Weeks after that, we're going to dive into more of them. But for tonight, we start with applying this teaching to ourselves, that tonight, you have been made in the image of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful that your word does justice to the human experience. Lord, we do have a sense that there's something wrong with us, and, and it's true. There, there is something wrong with us. There, there's sin, and Lord, for that sin, there's a solution, and his name is Jesus. It's good news of great joy. It'll be for all the people that Christ has come, and he has lived, and he has died, and he has risen again, so that we can be forgiven, full, and free, and begin lives of, of freedom and joyful obedience. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would, would lean into our hearts this evening, that your spirit would do a work in our hearts this evening, that we would uh, wrestle with this truth and believe this truth that we've been made in your image, that while we would listen to the spirit's voice of conviction, we wouldn't listen to our own voice of condemnation, uh, the world's voice, uh, Satan's voice, that would seek to bring us low, that we might not be all that you've called us to be. So, Father, help us to be a people who look in the mirror and see the image of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.